Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Back when the pandemic started in 2020, I interviewed Dr. Joe Vipend, who's a Calgary ER doc. I interviewed him quite often because he was one of the sort of on the leading edge of, uh, of progressive practices around the prevention of COVID-19. And uh, he got into, uh, you know, he led some some uh, protests in, in Calgary and in, in Alberta, got a lot of attention, uh, put a lot of pressure on the Alberta government. But I haven't talked to him for a while. And I now that uh, we're back in, uh, you know, pandemic hell of, of a sort, I want to talk to him and see what he thinks about that, uh, explain some of the trends that are going on and what we can do about it. So welcome to the interview, Joe. Thanks for having me back. Well, look, a uh, big thank you for all of the advocacy work that you did, or you have done over the almost three years. And I think one of the things that you've done for me if, is you've explained complex issues, complex science in very simple, easy terms. If I can understand it, then everybody watching this video can understand it. Please explain the situation we find ourselves in now where we've got uh, we've got COVID-19, we've got the flu, we've got colds, we've got this thing called RSV that I wasn't familiar with, and it's just created this hellscape of respiratory illnesses. Can you explain that? Well, we've never seen this, in, in at least in my medical past, and I think going back, we've never seen this kind of confluence of multiple viruses. And we can probably get into why that is, but really what parents probably care about is, is what to do about it. So all of these viruses floating around, they're all probably have an element of airborne transmission to them. There may be some what we call fomite transmission, which is when you touch, you know, you touch a door handle that's covered in snot, and then somehow you touch your nose and your mouth, your eyes, and it gets into, infected. But there's definitely an element of, of airborne to, to all of those three viruses. So again, just like with COVID, we need to continue masking and the best mask possible, which means a respirator style mask that fits well to your face, seals so that all the breath is going in and out through the, the fabric. And if you're, you know, have the ability and turn up your ventilation, uh, install filtration systems in, in public areas or uh, areas where you gather with others. So that's that's how we deal with all of this that's going on. Now, uh, I made my first trip in October. That was the first time I traveled in almost three years. And I had to go, I had to catch a couple of planes, went to Ottawa, flew to Calgary. And, uh, I, you know, I've been taking your advice. So I had a good elastomeric uh, mask with a really good filter. Uh, and here's the strategy that I that I employed. And, and maybe, you know, folks can, can uh, maybe find this useful. But I had a CO2 meter a portable CO2 meter, and it measured CO2 parts per million. And the idea is it acts like a proxy for ventilation. So when you've got low CO2 reading, like between 400 and 1,000 parts per million, you're getting good ventilation. 
you can feel confident that you know the air is moving and the, the, there's a good HVAC system. When it gets above that, particularly above 1500, and like on the plane, it would be like 22, 2300. Well, I wasn't taking my mask off. There was no chance. And what that allowed me to do, Joe, is in a long trip, for example, and this might be analogous to a parent, you know, having a, a child in school, is when I knew, like when I was in the airport, and that the CO2 reading would be like 425 or 500. I go, okay, if I have to, you know, take my mask off to eat or have something to drink, I can find some place that's got a low, and then I feel some confidence that I'm going to be okay. And it's those kinds of adaptive strategies that have, I haven't had COVID yet, and we're almost three years into the pandemic. And is that the kind of approach that we, that, you know, parents need to take, even if it's not exactly what I did, but something, you know, those kind of, that, that approach? Yeah, I mean, CO2 monitors are a great surrogate for ventilation. They're not perfect, because if you have really good filtration in the room, it's not going to affect your CO2. Your CO2 could be very high, but you could still be very safe. And in fact, some people would argue that those that those plane rides with the high levels are still relatively safe because there's, uh, you know, the system's running everything through a, a very good um, uh, HEPA filter sure. or, or HEPA yeah. filter. Um, so you are relatively protected. So it's a, it's a surrogate marker though, for ventilation and uh, in strange places you're, you're not normally uh, attending. It can give you that um, sense as to how, how well it is. It's not going to protect against close contact right. transmission. So if you're sitting right next to somebody who's spewing out virus, even if the ventilation is good, you still could be um, at risk. Think of it as in cigarette smoke. If you're in an area where the cigarette smoke would collect, you and so your high CO2, you're at risk. But if someone's blowing smoke in your face, it doesn't matter how good the ventilation is. Right. And what I would do when I was traveling is I, I, would, I would look for places away from people. Mm -hmm. So I would make sure that I at least six to 10 uh, feet away from anyone else. And I might even go to the, into the washroom and sit in, in one of the stalls, you know, where I could be by myself. Uh, and I, and I could tell with my meter, what my, what the CO2 reading was. And then I felt I, at least I had lowered my risk. And this leads to my next point here, uh, because, uh, Joe, I, earlier this year, I started noticing along with a lot of other uh, healthcare workers and, and doctors, that public health officials had moved from this idea of public health as collective responsibility for stopping the transmission of a disease like COVID-19. And suddenly we were talking about, about private responsibility. It wasn't up to the, you know, the public health officers anymore to put in mask mandates or vaccine mandates or anything. It was like, no, you're on your own. You you just well, go figure it out for yourself. And I am at a I am at a loss to understand when that happened. And and you know was it a debate within the medical community that nobody else was aware of? Like how did this happen? Let's be very clear. The reason why public health exists is to minimize population level illness. And so there are elements of life that uh, you can't mitigate against, right? If if we if we were to let cholera run through our our water systems, you, you know, it's very hard to protect yourself from that. So that's why we have public health to to put in these solutions that 
treat us all. And so a lot of us who, who care about public health uh, really mourn the fact that public health seems to have given up on the idea that public health is for the public and instead are trying to do these pri you know, personal mitigations. Well, personal mitigations isn't public health. The other thing that I think people need to recognize is that they've, you know, they've spouted, uh, they, they've stated that you should judge your risk of illness as to how well you should protect yourself. So, you know, if you're at high risk because you're immunocompromised or you're elderly, um, or you live with somebody who's immunocompromised or elderly, you may behave differently than someone who is young and healthy, eats well, is fit. The problem with that is long COVID doesn't give a crap about whether you're vaccinated, about whether you're fit, about whether you're eating well, about uh, you know whether you're on no medications. Long COVID could hit anybody. There may be different levels of risk depending on on um, you know how healthy you are, but there are very healthy people that get long COVID, and we haven't we're not talking about long COVID uh, as a population. We should be. I want to get to long COVID in just a minute because that's a I I remember you and I talking about it early in the pandemic, uh, maybe six months in. And we seem to know so much more about it. We'll get to that in a sec. The, the thing I want to key in on, on the, in, in the discussion about personal responsibility, doing a personal risk assessment when you go outside the house, you know, maybe you're going to work, you're going to school, you're going on a trip, you're going wherever, what's, the, what's my risk? And, the, the, and I don't understand how public health officials have, are not being called on this. Because I don't have the information necessary to do an adequate personal risk assessment. I don't have data anymore. I don't have uh, mask guidance. I don't have, there's all sorts of things that I don't have. So how am I supposed to assess my personal risk? I have to, so the only thing I can do as a reasonable person is I, I just have to assume the worst. Right. And I always have yeah, to plan no, I for think the you're right. We're not we're not doing any testing, right? We're not reporting that testing. No one's talking about the testing. I think there's two people in Alberta right now that are that are kind of analyzing the data, myself and Kyra Markov with uh, CTV. So, and you know, how many people follow our Twitter accounts? Not that many compared to the population. So most people are in the dark. You know, nobody's talking about what airborne transmission is or the uh, reason for a high quality mask or the ventilation and filtration we're talking about. So we're told to make do all the right stuff, but we're not told what the right stuff is and when to do it. So it's a, it's a very sad time for, for, for society, I would say. I think that public health officials should be called on the carpet for this. And I remember they, there was a, a Twitter debate I had with Dr. Brian Goldman, who is the CBC's, it is it White Coat Black Arts? Mm -hmm. and, and he said in a tweet, he said, People today have all the data, all the information they need to do a personal risk assessment to keep themselves safe from COVID. And I called BS on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is, and there is no evidence that that we as just the common you know, folks who aren't medical professionals have access to that information. And yet that is the message that we're getting from you know, people like that with a high public profile, a doctor. We get it from the public health officials. And it's like they just don't want, they're just, you know, that famous meme, you know, where Homer Simpson fades back into the, in, mm -hmm. into the, into the hedge. That's what it's like. That's what they've done. They've just absented, absented themselves from the public discussion. And let's be very clear that most citizens 
don't engage in critical thinking. They use this heuristic that we listen to our leaders. And so I don't blame citizens for not wearing masks. I go to the store, I don't yell at, look at all you stupid people not wearing masks. No, they're, they're not stupid people. They're, they're doing what they're told to do. They are taking the information from their leaders and applying it to their lives. And so I, I very much want to make it clear that the people that are responsible for this situation are the leaders, not only medical, but political, and that um, it's not going to get better until we start. I mean, it's Mark, and we've talked about climate change, right? Unless you deal with the core problem of climate change, which is burning fossil fuels, you're not going to win on climate change. Unless you deal with the core problem of COVID and that it's an airborne transmitted disease that's asymptomatically spread um, and it causes long COVID. And if you ignore all those facts, you're not going to win. So we need to start acknowledging the problem and doing, doing what we need to do. I, I want to bring up the example of uh, Adrian Dix, who's the BC uh, health minister. And at a press conference about six months ago, he said he got really irritated with, with some questions from a, a reporter. And he went, I don't have to tell British Columbians to wear a mask. Well, dude, you do have to tell British Columbians because the, just as you said, people don't spend a lot of time you know, being as engaged maybe as you and I are. And they rely on their government. When the government says it's bad enough to wear a mask, they'll wear a mask. When mm -hmm. the government doesn't tell them that, they assume everything is okay. In the absence and, of guidance, they assume that they there's nothing to worry about. And it's even more than that, because that's why mandates were important, because you can see in Ontario, I mean, out here, they're not really doing this, but in Ontario, they've started to strongly recommend, right? Strongly recommend. And they really haven't seen the uptake go up that much, because people... Um, use the mandate as a cue as to what's expected of them in society. And so strong recommendation isn't enough. A mandate does say this is what we as society expect you as an individual to do to be part of the team. Um, and so my feeling is until we start talking mandates, we're not going to win. And, you know, honestly, Markham, I thought super sick kids, I thought children's emergency rooms would be enough to make our public health officials and our politicians shift. I thought that'd be enough. I knew that like old people dying, people were suddenly okay with, with that amount of suffering, but little kids, I, I, I honestly thought they would make the difference. I'm, I'm quite shocked. Well, uh, that makes two of us. Now let's talk about long COVID and uh long COVID, so there's a bunch of information uh or you know background information we could provide um i i've been reading uh, uh uh tweets from doctors saying look it it looks like every time you get infected your risk of long COVID goes up uh and it looks like i've even seen some doctors say you know this is kind of looking like the hiv virus you know where it kind of it hides in organs it hides in tissues and so you get sick you get over it and then it comes back you know, and it's really debilitating uh, for some people. Um, so what can you can you update us a little bit on what long COVID is and kind of where we're at with it? Okay, I'll, I'll start by saying we still don't really know. We don't know what the underlying pathology is. There's a bunch of theories, you know, virus continuing to live in the body, immune response to the virus, microclots. Um, I think there's a couple other theories out there as well. Um, but we really don't know the underlying pathology. And it may be that there's different pathologies for different people, but it does cause debilitating illness in some, some it's just like a chronic cough. Some people it's insomnia, but the people that are really being impacted are the, the, the fatigue, 
the shortness of breath. Um, and then there's also this whole phenomena of people getting um, sudden death, cardiac illness, pulmonary embolism. Um, that's kind of a whole other separate category of like acute on chronic type of phenomena. In any case, it, it's, it seems to be um, affecting a pretty high percentage of the population, depending on what you read, 10 to 30% of adults and somewhere between two to 10% of kids. Um, and we have no treatment for it. Like we honestly, we have no hard and fast therapy for this. People are using physiotherapy, symptom management, those kind of things, but we don't actually have a treatment for this. So you can imagine that there are actually millions of people in the United States and at least hundreds of thousands in Canada, if not millions, that are impacted by this every single day. And of course, that's going to have an impact on our society. Of course, that's going to have an impact on our staffing of any type of, uh, um, you know, uh, industry. And so people need to protect themselves with this because the only way to really deal with this is to not get infected. Now, I happened to read a news story about a study uh, a couple months ago, and it was on long COVID. And the, the numbers that they had were 20% of all people who will get infected will get some form of long COVID from mild to severe, but 6% of them will have to will will miss work for more than three months mm -hmm. so when we look around you know the economy we and, and all of the labor shortages and you know the short labor shortages in the in the healthcare system and all the problems that that's causing and then various other you know industries that we rely on and the restaurant industry and all kinds of them and we're, we're sort of making the connection well people are sick but we haven't made the connection yet to long covid and the it, it looks like that as time goes on and more people get severe long COVID, that number has to grow, it has to multiply. And this becomes an economic issue, it becomes a financial mm -hmm. issue, because if you're, the, if you're the breadwinner and you can't work for three months, who can afford that? What if it's or six if you're months? A, if you're a shop owner and you can't hire staff, <laughs> I mean, it's the, it's, if, if we want to just talk pure economics, like this is a big deal. The other thing I think that, you know, we haven't, you kind of touched on a little bit is this idea of immune dysfunction. And I think there's very real reason to believe that some of the severe illness that we're seeing right now in kids, but also in adults is due to some kind of post COVID phenomenon um, where people are, because we don't seem to have more RSV and we know the RSV isn't any different than the past RSV due to sequencing. It's the same RSV, but yet people seem to be reacting differently. And the concern is maybe that is immune dysfunction. Yeah, I, I've seen that debate uh, because there was the immune uh, the immune debt argument versus the immune theft argument. And mm -hmm. and maybe you want to explain that for us. Well, there, there are certain people that are arguing that because we haven't had a lot of illness over the last two years, our bodies aren't used to this, our immune systems aren't exercised enough, and therefore people are getting unwell. Um, there's a couple problems with the theory. The first theory, the first problem is a lot of people pushing this idea are the people that were saying that we should allow Omicron to rip through society and try and chase immune uh, herd immunity. So they have a bit of an intellectual conflict of interest. You know, if it actually turns out that that was a really bad idea, then and, and it actually has caused immune theft then, then uh, that impacts them. The other thing to think about is this same phenomena is happening in Sweden, it's happening in Florida, it's happening in Switzerland, it's happening in these locations where there really wasn't any 
decrease in um in illness spread right like there there was just there was no almost no masking in those three locations um as sweden and florida in particular just kind of let her rip right and so they are still dealing with the same phenomenon as as we are uh and yet they haven't had that so one of the things when you look at a theory is you need to see whether you can make predictions uh based on that theory that that would bear it out and i would say that that the prediction would be that those places that um haven't had the same amount of of uh precautions should be protected. We're not seeing that. And therefore we got to be suspicious about that idea. Right. Just to sum up. So immunity debt is, is, uh, you know, we, we were mitigating, we were avoiding, we were masking. And so our immune systems kind of got lazy or, mm -hmm. or, you know, the, out of practice. under the, yes, out of practice. Thank you. That's a good way to describe it. Whereas immunity theft is you, you've been, you've got COVID maybe once, maybe twice, three times, who knows? And, and it's damaged your immune system. And now that makes, uh, so even if you, you know, you just get a, a common a cold, influenza, something like that, then your immune system has been damaged and it's less able to cope with that. And they become more ill, more likely to be in the ER, more likely to be hospitalized, maybe even die. Have I got that correct? Yeah. And the reason why this is really important to get right is because the two responses are dichotomous, right? If it's immune debt, we should be going out and getting as, mu as much infection as possible, right? We, should, we need to bathe in the infection in order to keep our practice up and stop masking, let it go through schools, whatever viruses there are. If it's immune debt, uh, theft, then what we need to be doing is really protecting ourselves from COVID. If you've had COVID once, make sure you don't get it a second time. If you've had COVID four times, make sure you don't get it a fifth time. If you've had COVID zero times, make sure you don't get it for the first time. And so because the response to the two theories are so in opposition getting this right right now is really important and but um isn't there okay now i've heard you talk a lot about the precautionary principle and since we don't really know whether it's immune theft or immune immune debt it seems like it, the if i was looking at this and going well you know if i had to hedge my bets if i was managing my risks if I assume that it's immune uh, theft and I would protect myself more, uh, what's the worst thing that can happen? I've been protecting myself. It's no big right. deal. If so I there's assume three diseases, that... right? There's an influenza, RSV, and COVID. COVID and influenza we have vaccines for. RSV, they're developing one rapidly. Worst case scenario, you mask, you protect against those three illnesses, you, you immune yourself every, like you get your shot every year. And when RSV uh, immunization comes along, they get that as well. I, I think the idea of letting her rip, um, especially because the people that are promoting these theories have been wrong multiple times through the pandemic, we should be really turning to those um, thought leaders that have been ahead of things. That, so. Right. Like like you. But but well, but, I, don't but, know, but I, I get all these ideas from smarter people than me, but I'm <laughs> I'm I'm okay at communicating them. Yeah, you say that, Joe, but uh, trust me, in, in my world and and you know, in the average world, you're a thought leader. So just you're gonna have to accept it gracefully, my friend. Right. Now look, but here's the thing. There are I, I suspect that a year or two or five years from now, uh, there are going to be people who find themselves with long COVID and are are crippled. They're debilitated. 
because they just they you know let it rip and and they got infected a number of times they got the worst case of long covid not the you know the least case the least impactful case they got the worst case and they're going to looking back and 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 we're going to have a huge burden on the healthcare system we're going to have a huge burden on the economy a huge burden on families and especially if children are are injured in the way it appears that they might be would we, why would we not want to avoid that these are deep questions, Markham, as to why society has opted for this. And one of the things that we need to be clear, it's not just BC, it's not just Alberta, it's the Western world, right? Um, China is even starting to, to bend away from its zero COVID policy. Japan's probably still the place we should be trying to emulate. And I would say, you know, even more than China, Japan has really promoted respirator mask use and 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 the 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 methods of trying to do airborne mitigation. Um, and so, um, yeah, we until we start doing that, we are going to continue to fail. And pretending it's not even an issue like we are now is. Um, well, I, I my, my my personal take on this is that at least some of the responsibility lies with those people who are anti-vask, anti-mask, and, you know, made a big deal out of it in the summer of uh, 20, well, 2022 and 2021, you know, attacking the prime minister and all, you know, being violent and, and you know, the convoy uh, uh, in occupation in February in, in Ottawa, that sort of thing. I think that has put a chill on not just the politicians. I think the the public health bureaucrats. I think they're well, worried about that. Let me challenge that by saying that public health laid the groundwork for this, right? They promised the pandemic would be over once we were vaccinated, but we knew this wasn't a sterilizing vaccine. We knew it wouldn't make the transmission go away. All it would do would de decrease you know, ICU and hospitalizations and death, which is important, but not enough to actually stop the pandemic. Right. We know that a lot of um, public health people even now are minimizing the utility of masks and still minimizing the importance of airborne transmission. So this has all laid the groundwork for you know, those people who want to challenge um, what needs to be done. Uh, they, they have the tools, thanks to uh, thanks to our um, medical colleagues. Well, Joe, uh, we're not going to we're not done this conversation by any stretch. I'm sure that I'll have you back for for interviews in the, in the future, because it looks like this is going to stick around uh, for a while yet. Uh, we are in a sad situation. And as like you, I mean, I've got grandkids who are are in uh, in daycare in Calgary. My my wife is or sorry, my, my daughter's a teacher in Calgary. And it's just overwhelming. And I fear for them. And I'm sure, you know, I'm one of millions uh, in that situation. So Markham, uh, you haven't got COVID. I haven't got COVID. My kids haven't got COVID. That's because we know how to protect ourselves. And we just need right. to have more of the population taught how to do that so that we don't have this rampant spread. It's it's not an impossible situation. That's the sad thing. We have we have solutions. Well, look, I'm going to this is I'm going to close off this interview with a plea. If there's anybody who's watching who is not convinced that that mitigation and stopping the, the transmission of the virus is the best way to go ahead, uh, we'll get Joe to give you his uh, Twitter address uh, in a minute and you can check him out. He's all on his timeline. There's all kinds of links 
and all kinds of information that's very, very useful. And I'd encourage you to follow him and, and check out his information. Joe, what is your Twitter, Twitter, Twitter uh, handle? For as long as Twitter still exists, it will be jvipondmd. So. Okay. Well, look, we hope we've done something useful here. Thank you very much, Joe. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Thank you.